Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's about life, culture and politics, all through the prism of food. And this week's episode has it all. I was always a contrarian in that dining room because the truth is I, I was born just obsessed with food, loving good food, um, and looking for pleasure in food. Travel writer Sylvie Bigard was brought up in a Swiss-French Downton Abbey, and her book Cassoulet Confessions is a story of class, nostalgia, and dysfunctional family. As we follow her through her adventure into her own Jewishness, and what she finds out of the crust of the Cassoulet, we get a tale of two sittings the mystical stew and a potent dish of family secrets and hidden heritage. I asked her why the cassoulet was surrounded by so much folklore. Well, there's many reasons why cassoulet is really a mystical dish. Uh, When you first think about cassoulet or when you first learn about cassoulet, you may think it's a stew. What's the big deal? It's a couple of beans and herbs and whatever meat you have lying around. But in fact, it is the epitome of the convivial meal. That's the first thing. It's the one pot dish. You put this thing in the middle of the table. And there's usually not a a minute of silence. I'm not going to say that, but a few seconds where people sort of, you know, kind of smell it, first of all, because it smells incredible, the caramelized crust, because a lot of the magic happens in the crust. But then it's also the fact that, you know, the the host serves the people around the table and everybody's tasting the same thing at the same time. And there's usually a, mmm, you know, which denotes uh, the beginning of a great meal. And then, of course, hopefully you found, re- you know, wine from the region. And so you're drinking hearty Languedoc wine with this. And it's really... A magical moment. And the magical moment for you was when you found that there was this unsung dish that as a travel writer, you could go and find out about. Editors love these sort of hidden treasures, particularly in food, that speak about so much more. So you talked to your editor. And what did your editor say? He looked at me and he said, go. Gorgeous. Heaven, heaven. And you did. And of course, the book is about so much more than the cassoulet, but, and we will find out much, much more about your adventures, but let's just stay with cassoulet. Cassoulet is, is, is a dish that binds families and communities. You know, it's a slow stew of pork, lamb, goose, sausages, white beans, herbs, and crucially, duck fat. What did you find on the ground about this mystical dish? What did you find about the, this poetry and folklore surrounding it? Well, I found out um, from the stories that I was told that in years past, um, in small villages, the women would prepare the cassoulet um, on Saturday night, and then on Sunday, they would bring it to the village baker and to the baker's oven. And while everybody was at mass, the cassoulet would finish it's, uh, you know, final voyage towards caramelization and, uh, and magic. And in fact, it was a dish that bound not only families together, but the entire village. 
And, uh, and I had discovered there was an organization called the Universal Academy of Cassoulet. And that in itself, you know, kind of augured an amazing experience. But I had found Chef Garcia, the man who co-founded this organization. I'd called him from New York, tried to explain who I was, what I was doing. And this kind of gruff chef, you know, listened to me for a little while and just then said, well, come for lunch on Sunday. And then he hung up, right? Venez déjeuner dimanche. Clack. Tell us about that experience, which is your first food moment, the most extraordinary dinner party of your life. Well, in fact, when I arrived there, I had no idea there were all these stories. I was there to do a story and taste a stew. And so I arrive in this um, beautiful restaurant, which was housed in a 12th century castle uh, near Carcassonne, outside of the walls. Um, and I was very surprised to see, you know, all these people there. They sat me at the table. And then suddenly I heard kind of a commotion coming from the kitchen. And suddenly this procession. Uh, first of all, I heard a song in a language I'd never heard. Um, you know, I, I speak a few languages, but I would learn later that they were singing in Occitan. And this procession ambles out of the kitchen, men and women in red robes and red beret, and they were carrying a stretcher that was covered with uh, a silk fabric in red and gold on which I could read Académie Universelle du Cassoulet. And I'm pinching myself and I'm thinking, where am I? Where have I landed? And then, of course, I'm completely jet lagged. So, you know, I, I think I'm in some I kind of hallucinating. No, totally. I mean, it's really it's like I'm Alice, you know, or something anyway. Um, and so the all of these people, you know, amble into the dining room and the chef um, with someone else takes the two massive uh, clay pots that are on top of this stretcher. They put one in front of me. He sort of takes a huge uh, wooden spoon and plunges his spoon in there and some kind of blob arrives on my, on my plate. And then I take one taste. It, silence. Everybody stops and they're all looking at me and it tastes like home. And this doesn't make any sense because I grew up in a very, very different atmosphere. And that was the first inkling that, uh, you know, there was something to look for. It's really extraordinary, that idea of a kind of an intangible memory, isn't it? It's to do with nostalgia. I was unpacking this with some of my students recently. You know, where does that feeling of belonging come from where you can't grasp? It's like whispers on a wind, isn't it? It's You can't quite grasp it. But you knew in that moment that this was much more than a stew. What was the difference between deciding to kind of go on whatever adventure that led you and actually fulfilling the needs of the piece from the editor who said, just go to Carcassonne and do me this piece about cassoulet. So the difference is the time. When I first tasted the cassoulet, I knew there was something there, there was something deeper, but I was there on a mission. I was there on assignment, as we say. And so I did 
go back to New York. And I did write the piece about the history of cassoulet. And I tried to put this behind me. And then it wouldn't let me go. And so months after months, and in effect, year after year, I kept writing about this experience. I wrote about the beans. I wrote about the pots. I wrote about the clay, which was very interesting and came from a village there um, called Isel. I wrote about the chef, of course. I wrote about the Academy Universal, the uh, Universal Academy. Um, and then I realized I needed to go back. I needed to learn how to make cassoulet, but I didn't know why. I couldn't understand it. And even, mm. you know, my mother would say to me, so uh, are you going to write about anything else ever? You know, she sort of, um, you know, made fun of me a little bit. And so it was hard to convince um, Chef Garcia that I wanted to apprentice with me. He He was sort of sneering and thinking, oh, you know, this American journalist, you know, what does she, why does she want to come back? Tell us about Chef Garcia. How did you find him? Why is he the king of Cassoulet? I found him because he was the co-founder, but really the mastermind behind the Universal Academy of Cassoulet. And um, unfortunately, the restaurant now um, is has been sold and Chef Garcia has retired. Um, so we can't have this experience again, which in effect is also magical because sometimes you just cannot relive something that was so powerful. Um, he was passionate, passionate about his land, the Languedoc, passionate about... Um, authentic food and what we call today slow food. He was passionate mm. about traditions and ingredients and why it was important to use the particular bean that came from that field over there. He would go and pick up the herbs from the Montagne Noire, um, you know, on Sunday. There was no shortcuts. He was a poet, still is, and, and a philosopher of the kitchen, very much so. Yeah. And I fell in friendship with this man. And he was the one who gave you a sense of the place of Cassoulet and Carcassonne. I mean, I love the fact that you say the, the front page news is the theft from Leal of duck, pork, sausages, four large hams, six foie gras and a few entrecotes. It's just <laughs> wonderful. That this is really the most important thing. But also that Cassoulet is absolutely what binds families and communities this is exactly a big status food I and mean, the wonderful description you tell us about in your first food moment of the oompa lumpas and the and the silks that's a celebration of something that is very important to the people of this area isn't it tell us about how it got from this this folklore to this high-status food without actually changing any of the ingredients? Well, in fact, you know, it's an ancestral dish and many cultures around the world have similar stews, uh, many of them starting with beans. It was what was cultivated in the area. But what happened was that um, I think over the years, people realized that there had th there was a jewel there. There was something that could be celebrated and for some that could be exploited. And that was what really irked Chef Garcia. The fact that um, you could find, you know, the all-you-can-eat cassoulet for eight euro at the um, highway stop. 
You know, these things made him ill. And then the whole um, cassoulet in the can, um, you know, my adventure, I will at some point in the book also visit the, the factories in the same Occitanie region that produce tons of cassoulet in a can. And some of them are not bad, but... Mm. Um, but those kinds of things just he could not accept because the truth is, and we have to say it, a true cassoulet without wanting to fear people away takes three days to make. Yeah. And so there was this dichotomy between celebrating the terroir and exploiting the terroir. And that's where he came in. Yeah. And that kind of dichotomy is very interesting because, of course, you know, the slow stew is something that the poorest people in the world will make and have always made. But it's also the uh, the privilege of the people who have the time. And they tend to be the people like, well, actually, your parents. Um, let's move into the story of where you come from and how food was in your family served by the butler in his beautiful uniform and his white gloves. Did you ever ever have anything like cassoulet as a child at Beauchamp, your family home? No, I never had anything resembling cassoulet at Beauchamp, the mini Downton Abbey um, I grew up in uh, overlooking Lake Geneva. In fact, we um, didn't cook. We had a cook. We had uh, Carmela, who was this wonderful Spanish cook, and her husband, Joachim, and um, my parents were not interested in food. Um, my mother ate uh, her very own unique brand of light French food. She was um, very focused on her weight, we're going to say. And, um, and my father just didn't have time to care about food. He just ate, you know, to get fuel into his system. But your mother did, I mean, they were both fascinated in a way, your mother more so with the status of food. Well, those incredibly torturous dinners that you had to sit through as a child, silent, serious, your parents talking about things that you just weren't interested in. You know, Joaquim cutting your food up so that you couldn't possibly spill anything on the oriental carpet. Um, you know, it, food was about status and it was it was it it must have given you a, a very odd relationship with something that you clearly love so much well it's interesting because i was always a contrarian in that dining room because the truth is i i was born just obsessed with food loving good food um and looking for pleasure in food. And so even though some of the things we were served, for example, the endives that I just, you know, couldn't stomach and that I tried to wedge under the chicken bones pretending I'd eaten it. Um, but I always would find some other part of the meal that I loved. And I was always uh, attracted by the way food was made. In fact, I would spend time in the kitchen watching Carmela and particularly when my parents uh, were out and Carmela and Joaquim would uh, have their own meal in the staff dining room, um, often even making paella and specialties from Spain, which, by the way, has resulted in a passion that I have for Spain myself and for Spanish food. Yeah. 
Well, of course, because it's filling a vacuum, isn't it? I mean, you're not getting that love. You're not getting that wonderful sort of tactile relationship from your mother. Your father, you had a very good relationship with, but he was giving the impression that there was much more exciting stuff to do other than eat. Um, and you were entranced by what his life was all about, but quickly realised that there was something very weird going on in your home life. It was a toxic set of relationships, not just between your parents, but between you and your sisters as well. The reason why that is so compelling in the book and why it has so much to do with Cassilet is because of this dichotomy between a sort of an emptiness and a and a craving to feed yourself, to nourish yourself, to thrill your soul with stories of uh, a sensory pleasure. At what point in your story did you start coming to grips with that? I mean, was it, for example, in at the Paul Bacuse uh, dinner table in your second food moment? Is that why you chose that? I am very um, interested in nostalgia and the way that food, culture and nostalgia sort of bind together. So Paul Bocuse, um was one of the luminaries of French cuisine. He'd had three Michelin stars um, and kept them for decades. Um, and he's no longer with us. But for uh, all this time, his menu uh, didn't really change. He was preparing the dishes that he had learned to make with Fernand Point, with La Mer Brasier, some the of the, um, yeah. you know, Lyon, um, the original chefs. And so going to dinner at Paul Bocuse was sort of a, uh, kind of a stroll in time. Um, and in a way, it was completely different from Chef Garcia because we were eating, you know, what was at the time, uh, high level cuisine but it was also from coming from the traditions what really grabbed me about this particular moment is that it is status food of course you know three michelin stars since the 1965 you know nobody else has had that level of success consistently he was the king you go to paul bacuse that in itself is something quite extraordinary you eat the most amazing food you know you you started with the super truffe noir that was created in 1975 by Bocuse for Giscard d'Estaing. Yes, for the president of France. For the president there at that time of France. I mean, you know, this is at the Elysee Palace in Paris. This is status food. You knew that at the time. You enjoyed that as much as going with your friend who you had chosen because she closes her eyes when she eats foie gras. So this is coming together of the food that your mother would have approved of and this total sensory pleasure that you'd been craving all your life. That's what I read in that food moment. Is it what you experienced? Yes, absolutely, Jilly. You, you've absolutely gotten that. Um, and what I think made it even more memorable was the fact that, you know, I'd gone that day uh, to the restaurant, to l'auberge uh, in Colonge. I'd taken a taxi from the train station and I just said, um, going to Colonge. And the taxi driver turned around and said, he's not open for lunch. And so that also showed me you know, he knew where I was going. He knew who, who Bocuse was. He knew he wasn't open for lunch. And I went there for an interview. And I was supposed to take the train that night because I wasn't going to ask to have dinner there. I, it was a very expensive proposition. 
And I was supposed to get back to New York the same day. And then after the end of the interview, Mr. Bocuse, Monsieur Paul, how we, you know, that's the way people always, everybody yeah. called him. Monsieur Paul got up and said to me, you're having dinner here tonight. And it wasn't even a question, you know. And so <laughs> I, no to that. so in a way, I, I, I loved that um, sort of assurance, just like Chef Garcia said, come for lunch on Sunday. You know, you want to learn about us, come and do this. And it's not a question. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah, take it seriously. Your third food moment is duck fat. Now, this is one of the key ingredients, along with a medley of meats and the beans of the cassoulet. Chef Garcia says that the most important ingredient is duck fat. Now, this is really interesting. For me, I wrote my very first book way back when was about the Mediterranean diet. And I interviewed Dr. Serge Renault, who came up with the idea of the, the French paradox. And you talk about this in the book. It's the exploration of how come people in southwest France have the least incidence of heart disease, while the biggest consumption of animal fat what Serge Renault actually found later, it was the Mediterranean diet. It was the olive oil and the red wine combination rather than the saturated fat of the duck fat. But what I love is that Garcia, for example, and many, many other chefs and duck farmers would absolutely jump on that one and say, it's the duck fat. It's the thing that everybody should eat uh, to have a healthy heart. Why did you choose this one for, for your third food moment? Because, you know, I live in the United States where... Um, I Maybe a little less now, but at the time in in the uh, you know 2010 around that, um, f fat was in the newspaper every day. Uh, people were so afraid of fat, right? And so uh, American um, you know uh, products very often tout low fat, low sugar, low carb. I mean, Americans don't know what to do to lose weight, in fact, because there's such a huge amount of obesity here. When the truth is, and we know this, so much of, of weight gain has to do with the amount of food that you ingest. Um, actually, Chef Garcia um, is a is a very thin man who spends his life, you know, cutting up pig head and and pig skin and pouring duck fat over beans. And yeah. th as we find out in 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 my book as well, um, in Cassoulet Confessions, they eat cassoulet. His family eats cassoulet three four times a week. <laughs> That's extraordinary. But as he says, you know, fat is flavour. Fat is a pleasure. Exactly. And just eat a little bit less of it. Exactly. Your fourth food moment is about the beauty of French life. It's back in time, um, back into your, your childhood memory. Um, I mean, it's so interesting, this book, because there are two parallel narratives, aren't there? There's the, the search for the cassoulet and there's the search for yourself. And the search for yourself then takes on another narrative, uh, which is the search for your Jewish identity, which had really, you had no idea what had been covered up and which felt to me was a, the reason for a lot of the toxicity in your family. Um, the, the holding of secrets, the, the inability to express who they really were. This final food moment kind of conjures up a, 
a wonderful childhood memory of a very particular kind of life. So my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, uh, rented for years a property um, on the Cap d'Antibes in uh, on the Riviera called Chateau de la Garoupe. They went there from Geneva, from, from Switzerland where they lived, uh, for several months, usually during the winter. And they would bring their whole staff with them. They would bring their cars. Uh, my grandfather, Pierre, would bring his boat. And they set up there in what looked really like an enchanted uh, atmosphere. What was enchanted was the garden, one of the most beautiful Mediterranean gardens, and still is, actually. Um, and, of course, the sea and the landscape. Now, what was happening in the house was maybe not as enchanted as it seemed to be. I mean, let's put some colour to this. Uh, the Cap d'Antibes uh, was the inspiration for Tender is the Night. Just around the corner there was the Hotel du Cap, which I still go down to see every time I go down to Antibes because my mother was absolutely fascinated by this as well. And it's because of Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald in the 1920s and a whole group of sort of literary people who would winter there like your grandparents did a, a few decades on. And so why did did you choose this as a fourth food moment? So um, lunch at La Garoupe in the 1950s was a very formal affair. And what I love about this moment and the reason I chose this um, is that I have a photograph of a luncheon at La Garoupe. Um, it, it's a fantastic photograph. You can actually smell the wisteria. You see it around the table. And then everybody basically is on it, on their best behavior. It's lunch. Maybe it's a Sunday, but my father's wearing a suit. His father's wearing a suit. Um, other relatives are there with, you know, huge stray hats. And then there's a butler, of course, their own butler, Paul, with his white gloves. And there's a number of, uh, wine bottles on the table and they are empty. There's also sure. a champagne bottle that's empty <laughs> and it's hard to know exactly what they were eating. But you can just imagine because I know that my grandmother actually went to uh, the market to see what the fishermen had brought that day. And that's how they decided on the menus. So again, it is a very different experience. Slow but food. we are again talking about slow food and terroir yeah. and what, you know, what was um, growing then if it's the spring, maybe the asparagus were already um, you know, on the markets. And so yeah. I just thought it was just such a completely different ambiance but the bottom line is always the terroir yeah and the community you, as a little girl you must have been looking at these photographs and and wishing that you had that sense of of fun and and hedonism and lightness about food while you were you know waiting to go in for dinner and being desperate not to spill anything on the oriental carpet. What I found really interesting about this was, you know, it again, it, it slices the narrative down the middle because these are your paternal grandparents that you're talking about in the Cap d'Antibes in 1950, and yet your maternal grandparents had been through Helen back. Your mother had grown up in a secular family, hadn't she, in Paris, 
And it was the war that changed all of that. So my mother was born in 1925 in Paris, and she grew up in a completely secular family. Um, my my grandparents celebrated Christmas. They would prepare a dinde au marron, a chestnut turkey, the typical French Christmas uh, dish on the 25th of uh, December. They were not at all interested in uh, their Jewish identity, even though they had a Jewish name. And um, interestingly enough, when things, uh, you know, when when uh, Germany invaded France, um, they did not feel they were at risk because they had Swiss passports and they thought that the Swiss passport would protect them uh, forever. And in fact, uh, my mother continued to go to her beloved lycée in Paris, Lycée Molière. Um, she was a you know stellar student, and on uh, you know she finished her year in June of 1942 uh, with amazing grades. I think she was the second best student in the whole lycée, and. Um, so her life changed dramatically on July 16, 1942, when the French police uh, banged at the door of the apartment um, in the 16th arrondissement. It was actually a miracle that my mother and her mother were able to escape through the kitchen door. And my grandfather opened the door and explained that uh, his wife and daughter had already gone out. It was four in the morning to line up for bread. The police did not search the apartment, miracle number one. And miracle number two, they didn't take my grandfather, which I still mm. to this day don't understand. Um, it was the rafle du Veldiv, the uh, Veldiv roundup, um, where I think about 8,000 uh, people would be taken and uh, and then sent to, to the camps. Um, my grandfather closed the door. He ran out the kitchen door as well, and the family was able to escape. Uh, they would then go into the free zone, um, and then after several months were able to get through Switzerland. Yeah. And was this a story that you knew when you were a child that your mother talked to you about? Maybe not when I was a child, but she told me this story um, very often, and the the witness of this story was the black and white photograph of my late uncle, her beloved brother, who had gone uh, into the army and uh, died in 1944 at age 26. Yeah, you know the Holocaust had a massive impact on identity amongst Jewish people. There was a coming together of of some kind of resistance, a spiritual resistance, as well as an active resistance, and particularly in occupied France. How did this kind of enter your consciousness when you're going through these adventures in Cassillay? I find it absolutely fascinating that people who didn't think th themselves as as Jews were basically shocked into um, a situation where the other person on the other side of the door doesn't care whether you feel Jewish or not. You're on the yeah. list. You're Jewish. And that has brought me to try and transmit that knowledge to my children. And even though I am not a religious person, I did insist that my two children be bar mitzvah because 
even if they don't feel Jewish, even if they'd rather, you know, eat on Yom Kippur, um, God forbid something like this happened again, uh, the people who are looking to take you don't care how you feel about your Judaism. Hugely important to keep telling that story. Let no one ever forget. And part of the the purpose of this book is really to keep telling that story, to remind people of why it's so important to keep telling the story. Can you tell us what you found under the crust? No, actually, I can't tell you. Um, you're going to have to read the book because I'm not going to tell you the whole story right now. But let me just tell you that it finally made sense. How do you feel about who you are now, Sylvie? You're a Swiss French American. You're 99.8% Ashkenazi Jew. I mean, can you happily, effortlessly be all of those things? Because it feels to me that your book is about tearing you in different directions and to find who you are through these series of adventures. Where are you now? Well, I am thrilled that the book is out. I think I'm going to say that because the quest for um, identity and why this crazy obsession with cassoulet, um, you know, I have found that. I know why I went there. The question is, where am I going from this? And where am I going as a writer as well? I live in New York, um, but Europe is calling me. Uh, very much. And still, even though I am not um, Sephardic, Spain is calling me. I've been spending a lot of time in a village in Spain uh, writing what I hope will be my next book. In Search um, of and- Carmela. <laughs> exactly. In Search of Paella. <laughs> but, but yeah, the question is, What do you do once you understand and accept all those identities? How do you create kind of the next chapter in your life? And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on that. It's called Casino Confessions, which suggests the revelations, but also a little bit of guilt. What, what are you confessing or whose guilt are we talking about? Whose confessions are we talking about? Well, this is very, it's a very good question. Um, I think the guilt may have come from the fact that I was obsessed with this heavy, fatty stew. And, you know, compared to the way my mother ate um, with her steamed haricot vert um, and, uh, you know, and, and sole uh, à la vapeur, um, maybe that's where the guilt is coming from. But it's a confession mm. Also, because at the end of the book, I mean, there is an aha moment. There is a moment where I finally understand where this came from. And uh, and maybe I don't feel guilty anymore. Thanks for listening. You can read the transcripts at jillysmith.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter. And do follow me on Instagram. I'm at foodjillysmith. I'll see you next week.